healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I'd like to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Jim Wachtel from Renologic. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Excited to talk with you today. So here's the game plan. Uh, What we seek to do on this show is challenge status quo uh, purchasing methods and educate our audience on non-traditional approaches to either lower the cost of healthcare or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Absolutely. Love the topic. Live it every day. All right. Good stuff. So to get started, I'm going to read a bio about you and and Renalogic so the audience has a little bit of context for who they're uh, listening to, and uh, then we'll jump into it. Sound good? Excellent. Thank you. Jim Wachtel is Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Renalogic, a company dedicated to helping employers manage kidney disease in their employee population. Jim joined Renalogic in 2018, bringing with him more than 25 years of healthcare, sales, and financial experience, coming after a distinguished career in the U.S. Army. In addition to his role as the EVP of sales and marketing, Jim works with fellow executive leadership team to identify, define, and execute on strategic and organizational health initiatives. Jim earned his Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration from Clark University in Iowa and an MBA from the Henry B. Tippey School of Business at the University of Iowa. All right, Jim, anything else you'd like to share with us? I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, Appreciate the intro. Thank you. Let's start with just a little bit of background about yourself. How did you get into the health insurance uh, industry and space to start with? Yeah, that's uh, kind of a circuitous route. And it started right after the financial crisis in 2008. I was working in the financial services industry and uh, had experience building businesses in uh, various industries. Long story short, the company I was working for shut down overnight. So I was out looking for new opportunities. Living in Chicago at the time, and uh, took me back to a very large regional broker based in Dubuque, Iowa. And they were launching some health and wellness initiatives that they had initially built for their internal clientele. And then we built it out to sell through the rest of the, the marketplace on a wholesale basis. So that was really my first taste in this industry. But I've always had an interest in healthcare and being healthy and knew that there were problems in the U.S. uh, culturally, really, about how we take care of people through the medical system, but also uh, how we live our lives. You've seen all the stats. The American lifestyle is wrecking havoc on chronic disease, and it really starts when you're young. And uh, I heard one doctor use the phrase that uh, your, your lifestyle or your age is finally caught up to your lifestyle. So a lot of these things that we're doing, living the American lifestyle, don't catch up to us until we're middle-aged or older and then start causing those problems. So I really took an interest in working with companies uh, as the source of healthcare for most individuals in the U.S. uh, on ways to solve those problems and uh, learned a great deal in the process and of continuing that charge as I've moved to Renalogic here in the last two and a half years. Got it. Love it. Well, let's let's start this uh, discussion at the macro level, and then we'll kind of get into the Renalogic uh, product and service. So, 
as you uh, know, and most of the people who listen to this podcast, you know, we have a growing affordability problem as it pertains to healthcare. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll indicated about half of U.S. adults say that they or a family member have put off or skipped some sort of health care or dental care or relied on an alternative treatment in the past year because of cost. Uh, It additionally states about one-fourth of U.S. adults, about 26%, say that they or a household member have had problems paying medical bills in the last year. And what's crazy about that statistic is a good portion of those people who have trouble paying their medical bills, they have employer-sponsored insurance. So, Tell me, in, in your in your words, what do you think is wrong with our, our healthcare system and how we pay for it? And, and why do you think costs continue to go up? Well, we could talk for hours about that. Uh, but I think the, the crux of the problem is that the expertise required to put the right solutions in place can sometimes be hard to find. So you, you have uh, lots of stakeholders in the equation and lots of companies who uh, reach the point of having difficulty affording to provide good health care to their employees without raising their costs or, sh- or cost shifting or things like that. So I think your podcast and uh, folks like you who are shining a light on these problems are really important as part of the solution and bringing better ideas to the marketplace because it ultimately depends on the consultants and the employers that are building the plans to work with all of the other service providers and constituencies to create plans that are affordable and high performing, not just on a financial level, but on an engagement and participation and providing of services level. In the intro, we talked about people's ages caught up to their lifestyle when we talk about the most expensive part of healthcare, particularly for self-funded health plans, that's the 20% or in in many cases, the five or 10% Mm -hmm. of the population that is highest risk and highest cost that have fallen through the cracks of the system. And when you think about those folks, they're not just a line item cost. Those are people with a history and a future. And that history involves things that got them to the state that they're in. So nobody, nobody becomes, we'll call them the five percenters, without lots of investment in prior years in either unhealthy habits or bad luck or a combination of the both. So I think uh, having a long-term vision as you're structuring a health plan is really important. There are lots of different ways to address that, and some are reactive and some are proactive. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those options in a minute. But I think for me, the, the most important thing to consider is the effect of our culture and our just overall educational system in terms of where people get their information about managing their own personal health and how we help empower members to take more responsibility for their own personal health over the long term. I really love one of the things you just said, because um, sometimes being in, in this world, we, we do get focused on the numbers. And and one of the things you just said is, is that, you know, when you look at the five percenters or the 10 percenters, they're people with a history and, and hopefully a future. You know, that's just, just reminds me that we need to have compassion when we're consulting with employers and, and talking about these things, because, uh, you know, there's people involved and to your point, you know, you know, hopefully they have a future. That was eloquent. That was nice. I'm going to steal that from you. I promise. <laughs> <Use it liberally. laughs> All right. Rena logic, very much a niche focused company. And so before we get into what you guys do, 
I thought it might be worth to frame the problem that you're, you're going after, that you're trying to tackle, which is kidney disease. So can you explain to our listeners what end-stage renal disease, what it is, and how is it treated? Sure. So end-stage renal disease is the end point or the culmination of chronic kidney disease. So chronic kidney disease is often called CKD. End-stage renal disease is ESRD, which means your kidneys have failed. The only way to survive after ESRD or end-stage renal disease, kidney failure, is through a medical procedure called dialysis or a kidney transplant. The medical procedure dialysis is essentially a life-saving treatment that an individual can undergo, typically in center three times a week where you're hooked up to a machine and your blood is removed from your body pumped through filters to remove toxins, and then pumped back into your body with the toxins removed. It's a a long and draining process, but it's a life-saving process. That's a high level what it is, and we could go deeper if you'd like. That would be my short description or definition of ESRD. And so what percentage of the population ends up having kidney disease and then kidney failure, and, and, and what causes that? That's a great question, and that's where we'll get a little complicated because a very large percentage of the population has some stage of chronic kidney disease, and chronic kidney disease is also known as the silent killer. So, in fact, uh, some of the stats are up to 40% of people with advanced chronic kidney disease don't know that they have it. And that's because they're not necessarily feeling the effects. And uh, predominantly, doctors are not diagnosing it. Uh, It's really interesting that doctors will focus on many of the other comorbidities that contribute to chronic kidney disease. But we find that 50% or more of people in the, the middle stages, it goes stage one through five, don't have a chronic kidney disease diagnosis. There are many contributing factors, but the largest contributing factors are diabetes, hypertension, and metabolic syndrome. So they are part and parcel with all of the usual suspects that we we hear about and talk about a lot in this industry. Got it. And so how costly is dialysis? And you you, you mentioned it was a life-saving mechanism. So how costly is it and how long are, 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 are people typically on it? As uh, chronic kidney disease progresses, you go through stage one, two, three A, three B, ending in five. Uh, stage five then leads you into ESRD, which is that kidney failure. That's when you would start dialysis, and a typical cost for dialysis would be about to a to a self-funded health plan would be about one point three million dollars per year per member. And that's really one of the problems we will be talking about here today. It is regularly the third highest stop-loss claim that gets flagged uh, by stop-loss carriers. Uh, The only two above it are a couple of different forms of cancer. So uh, if you end up with a dialysis member on your health plan, you're typically going to see that in the stop-loss reports. You're oftentimes going to get lasered, uh, particularly if nothing is being done. 
the preponderance of dialysis is actually pretty low. So you would expect to see it in less than 1% of your population. Let's say you've got a population of 1,000 employees. You may uh, statistically get a member every two or three years that ends up on dialysis, uh, but it can be very costly if that occurs, if you haven't planned ahead and had some other stop gaps in place. The reason it's so costly is the dialysis marketplace is very concentrated. And there are really two main large dialysis organizations that provide the service nationwide, and they control about 80% plus or minus of the marketplace. Wow. They get most of their profits from self-funded health plans, and they have very little reason or need to negotiate because they've got uh, basically a duopoly in the marketplace. And you said they get most of their profits from self-funded employers. Why would they get more from self-funded employers versus the commercial uh, carrier marketplace? I would believe that they also get a a bulk of their profits from uh, fully insured carriers. And the difference, the distinction is self-funded, fully insured, or we'll call it private uh, insurance as opposed to government insurance, Medicare and Medicaid. Yep. So. Medicare reimbursement, it's a hard number to pin down for a number of reasons, but it's its typically about 10% of, of the bill charges. So let's transition then to, to Rena Logic. And, and so what are you, what is it that you guys are doing to try to address and solve you know, some of the problems in the dialysis, the kidney disease and dialysis marketplace? Sure. So uh, we're, we're doing two things and we'll focus on controlling the cost of diabetes. So when we think about, uh, we talked earlier about proactive responses and reactive responses to the, the needs and the costs on health plans. And our cost containment solution is what we started with. And that was really a reactive response to shock claims or, or high laser type of claims within a health plan. We started about 20 years ago with this solution. We were called uh, dialysis cost control back then, and then it was DCC, and and now we're Renologic. And we'll talk about the the name change and the evolution of what we do after we talk a little bit about the genesis in controlling the costs of those dialysis claims. Uh, So essentially what we have come up with is a, a methodology, really a system to reprice claims in a way that is fair to the provider and reasonable and fair for the health plan to pay. And we do this through using the ERISA laws and a contract review and uh, depending on the TPA or the ASO, carving that benefit out of the rest of the plan. And what we're typically seeing is about 91% off of billed charges would be our recommended payment in response to a submitted regularly priced claim. And essentially, we do that by using public and private economic and statistical data. We put that into our system and we develop what we call our usual and reasonable allowed payment. We then submit that as the payment in full on the claim and the dialysis organizations have to accept that based on the plan language, the ERISA laws, et cetera. Uh, They may appeal, they may not be happy with it, uh, but when it comes down to it, uh, they have to accept it. And that's been happening, that process has worked for about 20 years and over a billion dollars worth of dialysis claims repriced. Do they have the ability to balance bill the employee for you know any any amount above what you guys are reimbursing? 
Generally, no. Uh, so how dialysis works, there's a, there's a lot of nuances. And we talked earlier, this is a very narrow niche within yeah. that plan space. And it's very specialized and most plans don't see it very often. And quite frankly, that we're, we're spending a lot of time on education for plans and, and then by extension to the members that we work with. Uh, but essentially, when you are diagnosed with ESRD, end-stage renal disease, kidney failure, that is one of two conditions that will allow you to be eligible for Medicare before age 65. The other condition is Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, so what happens there then is um, there are a couple of different nuances in how this happens, but there's a, a waiting period that involves an exclusion period. And essentially, there's just a small gap within the beginning of the treatment where a member could be balanced billed. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, at the very that time frame at the very beginning, the member can't be balanced billed because Medicare becomes the secondary payer. That's another nuance that our advocates work with when they are, are working with a member is to help that member get signed up for Medicare, because that means two things. One, through the bulk of the process, the member can't be balanced billed and Medicare becomes a secondary payer. But also after that 33-month waiting period, then Medicare becomes primary. So they can move off of the self-funded health plan or COBRA and move on to Medicare. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. So you guys don't necessarily have a network of, of providers where it's it's pre-negotiated rates. It's really about leveraging your proprietary method for coming up with what the reimbursement should be and then coordinating with Medicare to be that secondary payer. Yeah, that's uh, that's really uh, a, a great point. And that's a big misconception. We're generally not negotiating or creating networks. We are what we would call imposing the payment on the provider and working with the member to ensure that they are signed up for Medicare as secondary and then primary uh, once they have progressed through that waiting period. Perfect. Perfect. And so in talking with some, some of your other colleagues, you know, uh, they've mentioned to me that they're, cause there's, there's a number, you know, RBP is growing reference-based pricing out in the marketplace. You know, one of your colleagues has mentioned to me the risks of using a multiple of Medicare for provider reimbursement with regard to dialysis. So why is that? Why are there risks to, to doing that as opposed to the methodology that you guys are doing? That's a great topic because uh, of the popularity of reference-based pricing and really that being a tool to change healthcare and and, and plan delivery. Uh, and we're, we're fans in most cases of reference-based pricing and those types of models that give more control to the plan to de- deliver better results. The one difference about reference-based pricing, particularly when they're using a multiple of Medicare to base the, the claims payment, is that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to determine what Medicare would pay for a dialysis claim. And the large dialysis organizations have latched onto that and have actually litigated. There are uh, five cases, five recent cases, four that are ongoing. And if you'd like to do a deeper dive, we actually did a a legal webinar yesterday and that recording will be shared soon. Uh, We went deep on that. But the real nuance is in the fact that when Medicare reprices a claim, there are about 13 different variables that are taken into consideration, and there's no way to really predict what those would be. So then, given that system, the large dialysis organizations would argue that 
if you are basing it on a flat base rate of Medicare, you are using an arbitrary and capricious method, and they're going to push back on that. Uh, so since our method is is proprietary, it's not based on a multiple of Medicare, it's what we call creating the most defensible administrative record to protect the plan's assets. And that's really the big difference. The, the LDOs have really latched on to Medicare as a basis for litigation. That's a great point, right? So these the, the duopoly per se, I mean, they, they have an in incentive to, you know, get the highest rate of reimbursement that they can. And so they, they have um, basically discovered a loophole in, you know, in RBP type reimbursement. And so in the 20 years that you guys have been doing this, have you ever had them come back and be able to, you know, challenge you, you know, in court against your, your reimbursement methodology? There's only been two cases that we've been involved in and one of those is ongoing and mm -hmm. that's, uh, really outlined on our blog and we did talk about that quite a bit in the legal webinar that we did actually yesterday yeah. uh, so essentially that case was dismissed on the first day of trial and it's now uh, on appeal waiting for the next set of arguments uh, which i believe are scheduled for september uh, in that particular case, we have partnered with our client. So they, the LDOs generally wouldn't sue us. Right. Uh, they would sue, the, sue the plan that we were working with, but we have worked with that plan to defend, uh, to put together the resources and point them in the right direction and get the right expertise uh, for their defense. And, and so far, that's been pretty successful for them. So... That is the the cost containment. And well, I guess there's one other question I should ask. So if you guys are generally getting to about 91%, uh, you know, lower than build charges is your, you know, uh, reimbursement. How does that compare to a traditional network discount reimbursement? What we're seeing on average for a PPO discount nationwide is in the 20 to 25% range. There are some pockets that are, are much more aggressive, but when we look at our data, the average discount nationwide is about 20 or 25%. So uh, we're talking about on an annual basis, uh, leaving you know upwards of five, $600,000 on the table by using just a standard network discount. Right. And so being able to save, you know, $500,000 on a large claim, that's probably something that the stop loss uh, marketplace would, would provide some credit for, you know, from a pricing standpoint, right? Absolutely. There are, there are many carriers that uh, will offer some incentive uh, when we're in place and um, also wave lasers. And uh, we've got uh, very good relationships with the, the stop loss marketplace as well as uh, the, the broker and consultant community. Let's talk for a second about the preventive measures that you guys are working on. Love to talk about that. That's our newest product. And uh, that really came about for us to reprice dialysis claims. We typically have access to the claims data. Mm -hmm. And we were over the years seeing people getting sicker and sicker and sicker and then bouncing into dialysis. And worst case scenario, a person will go into dialysis through what's called an emergent start or starting in the emergency room, which means they didn't realize they had chronic kidney disease. They didn't know their kidneys were failing. And then all of a sudden they fail and they have to have an emergency procedure and an inpatient hospital stay that's very expensive and very traumatic for the individual. So that's worst case scenario, and that happens over 40% of the time. Best case, better case, is to have uh, 90 days to plan your access, get that place typically in an arm, let that heal, and then gradually enter into dialysis. 
regardless of how that happens, it's something that you're going to need unless you get a kidney transplant for the rest of your life. And it's very disrupting and traumatic for the individual. So we would see in that claims data, people getting sicker and sicker, and then all of a sudden going into dialysis. And our CEO said, uh, this is about, about eight years ago, he said, you know, there's, there's really got to be a better way. There's got to be something we can do differently. And our stated goal is to put our cost containment business out of business by preventing dialysis from ever happening. Now, that's a pretty lofty goal, but ideally yeah. what we're doing is a, a clinical solution that helps these members avoid dialysis that also is solving a need. So a lot of times people will ask, you know, well, we've got disease management, case management in place. And uh, then we ask the plan or the consultant, so how did you find out about your last dialysis case? And they say, well, uh, we've got a, a large claim report. And I said, well, shouldn't DM or CM have found that and, uh, you know, worked on that beforehand? And the answer is, you know, typically no. Yeah. So what we, what we do is uh, it's a very intensive clinical engagement that helps these members understand what their, their risks are what the, the resources are to manage those risks and change their health. And it's really not, it's technology enabled, but it's not technology driven. It's really people driven. It's driven yeah. by our clinicians and they meet the members where they are, whether it's what stage of disease, what is their schedule? Do they need a family member to help them manage this? Do we need to coordinate with their other services or care providers? And long story short, we've had a 99.3% success rate of keeping people off of dialysis and in many cases, reversing the kidney disease. Really? So, so I, want, I want to get into that a little bit. And first, a little bit more clarity about identifying the the at risk person, and then you know secondarily, what is it that you're you're doing with that member to you know put them on a different path and, and potentially you know reverse course? Yeah, so that's really kind of our secret sauce is how do we identify the members? So we take in you know, it all starts with the claims data, but I, I like to say that claims data is looking in the rearview mirror, and we need to be looking out the front windshield, looking out sure. over the horizon and seeing what speed bumps are coming up. So we'll start with claims data, but if we can get access to pharmacy data, biometric data, wellness data, we're going to feed all of that into our systems and we're going to identify members and then categorize them by risk level. And uh, we're also building out our artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities that is get, making us even better at finding these members. So for example, in uh, one recent population that we looked at, we found a lot of members that had no CKD diagnosis, but of this population, there were three members that had no CKD diagnosis and had a 72% chance of ending up in dialysis in the next year. So uh, having the ability to stratify those risks and engage those members and catch that risk early is really that proactive part of what we do that I was talking about earlier. So I imagine there's member outreach, you know, it's letting them know there's a program that's, that's available to help them avoid kidney failure and, and they have to voluntarily opt in. Are there any incentives for, for the member to opt in or is it just completely voluntary? From our end, there's there's no incentive other than the intrinsic motivator of better health and being there for your family. Uh, 
there are often planned design models where there are incentives for working with our clinicians. And the approach we take is we like to work with the, the plan and their consultants to think of it in terms of a three-year strategic plan. So what are the resources available to the member today? What is the plan design? What are the existing incentive models? And how do you plan to build that out, out over the coming years? That then becomes a roadmap that uh, after a year, we go back and review, did we meet our objectives? Do we need to adjust the plan? Uh, how does that fit into how the plan is being adjusted uh, from a global perspective uh, with the, the health plan and continue to, to uh, adjust and intervene? So our, and our success rate is very high but the, if you think in terms of a standard deviation, the standard deviation on the plus side is those plans that are more thoughtful about plan design, incentive design, uh, communication plan, working closely with, with our team and our clinicians to make sure that we've good, got, uh, got good contact data for the members. Uh, we're included in the benefit communication plan. So when our clinicians call a member, they recognize uh, who we are and that we're part of the health plan. And it's not just a telemarketer. Yep. Yep. Got it. Got it. And so do you guys have any statistics that you can share about when you get people engaged, you know, the, the ability to kind of, um, you know, reverse course and, and uh, you know, not have them, you know, enter into, you know, a kidney failure. Of the population we identify right now, uh, we've got between 30 and 40% that end up participating. Yeah. And uh, of that group, we've got a 99.3% success rate of keeping them off of dialysis. And for most of that population, I don't have, uh, we're working on stats on that right now, but, but I can tell you from what I've seen so far, most of that group has stabilized their disease, so maybe halted the progression. Mm-hmm. And there's another large percentage that has reverse the disease. The disease is typically measured, uh, again, I'm staying at 30,000 feet here, but uh, there's a uh, EGFR test, which is a blood test, or the it's really a calculation based on a, a blood test. And that's uh, one of the key measures of chronic kidney disease. And when we see that measure improving, that's our indicator that people are reversing their disease. Got it. That's, that's what I was looking for. The, the, the metric, right? How do we measure progress versus, you know, uh, you know, previous state versus, versus current state. So that, that makes sense. Measuring the, I mean, I would have to imagine maybe it's the toxicity level, you know, in the blood, something like that, that gets measured, right? Yeah. Well, I'll, let me elaborate on that a little bit. And, I, and sometimes I butcher the name here, but it's the, the EGFR <laughs> stands for glomerular filtration rate. And that's a measure of how well your kidneys are filtering your blood. And sending that waste uh, to be excreted through your urine. And uh, that's calculated based on a couple of factors and the the result of a blood test, creatinine. Uh, That's another important aspect of our program. So there's a lot of uh, debate in the the health plan and the wellness world about the value of biometric screenings and, and lab work and that type of thing. At this stage of the game, uh, first of all, I'm at full disclosure, I'm a big fan of biometrics when used properly, uh, but that's also built into our program because we find a majority of members that we're working with do not have current lab results. So we have the partnerships in place to get those labs taken for the members. So that uh, does two things. First, it gives them uh, insight and awareness into their uh, personal state of health. Mm-hmm. But it also gives us a baseline to measure success. So is the GFR improving? Is it regressing? Other things we look at, you know, there's, there's some of the big ones you would, uh, you, would, you would normally see. 
blood pressure, diabetes, glucose, A1C, sure. lipids, all of those things are comorbidities that impact the health of somebody that has CKD. So all of those things are measured too, but uh, to boil it down to the single best indicator, that's the GFR test. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just like the idea of just from a population health risk management standpoint, being able to measure those things, uh, you know, for, for the population in whole and, and being able to, you know, a year later or two year later seeing what's changed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We, um, can't measure, we can't manage it. That's right. That's right. You can't measure, can't manage it. Do you guys do anything to measure customer satisfaction or the, or the patient experience. You know, a lot of vendors out there use NPS scores, but, you know, to, to me, I mean, it seems like, you know, your, your clinicians would have, you know, a very intimate relationship, you know, working with the patients. And so I'm wondering, are you guys tracking any, you know, customer satisfaction type metrics? We are, and uh, we, we're not doing the NPS score yet, but that is in the plans. Uh, we'll probably roll that out in 2021. Uh, the reality is, um, give you a little bit of a secret here. When I joined Renalogic, we had 18 employees. That was two and a half years ago. In the last two and a half years, we are now almost 60 employees and we've been growing at over 50% per year. Uh, so some of those great things that we like to do, like uh, NPS scores, have just not been implemented yet because we're handling our growth. Uh, but yeah. we, what we do collect, which I think is as valuable, are those user stories, those member stories, and the success that they have had in their own words, really, like, you know, coming out and just gushing with, hey, my nurse so-and-so has helped me so much, I couldn't have done it without you. Or, you know, I've dropped 30 pounds and all of my metrics have increased by X. And we collect those stories on a daily basis. Our clinicians are uh, collecting those stories on a daily basis. We report those uh, anonymously back to the employer so they understand the, the good we're doing for their population. And we also do have a process where we can get the members permission to share to share their exact comments and who they are, either with their plan or with others. And uh, yeah. another thing that we're we're going building out is a, a a champion program. So when you've got larger populations, the the social network of behavior change and support, uh, having somebody that's had success and is able to be a champion for that success across the organization is something that we're working on and we think is going to have a, a really great effect for those populations as well. I absolutely love that idea. I think, um, you know, social, social support, social proof, you know, I think those are things that can go, you know, a long way. I also think it's, listening to you speak, I think this is a reminder of the deficiency in the current healthcare system. The notion that, you know, you can, you know, have a relationship with a provider and see them once or twice a year and, you know, get recommendations on what you should do with your health. It's hard on your own. And, you know, there's, there's value to being able to have a coach, right. That can, work with you and support you on a weekly, monthly basis. To me, that's, that sounds like, like filling a gap. And there's a lot of good care management vendors that do that. You know, I've had a number of them on my show, but to me, that's really filling a gap in, in the current healthcare delivery system. Yeah, I, I think you make a really great point there, Michael. And the, the buzz and the trend right now is all on technology. And we've got an app for this and an app for that. And I'm a huge believer in those things, but 
without the human element, particularly with what we call them earlier, the five percenters, the 10 percenters, they need that human touch. They need that coach. And that's where we're really different because we're really focused on the human element. We've got more, you know, most of our technology is more behind the scenes, supporting the process uh, and less about, hey, did you get the message on your app or did you sync this thing up? So we can text back and forth with our members, but we're not technology focused in terms of how we engage with the member. So if a member is participating, they've got a direct line to the same coach every time they call and they build a relationship with that person. In many cases, those are ongoing for years. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great and necessary, right. To drive the, the, the change that you want to see. So what we haven't talked about is the fee structure. So, so can you tell us what the fee structure is, uh, for the cost containment piece and, and the, the preventative uh, care management piece? Sure. So our, our cost containment piece is, uh, we've got two different ways of getting paid for that. And really all of uh, all of what we do, we call pay for performance because we have some nominal fees for setting up the technology, yeah. data feeds, et cetera. Uh, but for the most part, we're risk management in a plan until you need us or until in the case of the kidney dialysis avoidance program, the clinical program, a member raises their hand and agrees to persist, participate. So the uh, the fees for cost containment are either a percent of savings model or a flat monthly fee model. And that kind of varies depending on the other relationships that are tied to the, to the health plan. So there's really not one just set X, this is how much it is, but it's a very fair and it's, it's very much pay for performance. Uh, on the kidney dialysis avoidance program, again, some nominal setup and outreach fees but we don't really start getting paid until a member's raised their hand and said that, I like your story, I need your help, and I want to participate. And in that case, we are typically the highest rate we ever pay at this point, or excuse me, charge is $297 per month. And there are some scenarios where that goes down. For example, maybe a member has met some goals, made some dramatic improvement, and, and they need less engagement, so there's a lower fee for that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's the, the typical models. Well, I, I, I like the fact that it's, it's performance-based compensation, uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's based on engaging somebody in, in the program. I think a lot of times, you know, there's, there's programs out there that are per employee per month charges with no real ties to, you know, engagement. So I, I can appreciate the, the per participant, you know, structure for sure. Right important. I just want to add, it's really important that we're communicating with the plans we work with too, and providing ongoing reporting uh, to you know, make sure that they're apprised of the success we're having or, or the work that we're doing for them. Yeah, no, I think that is a good point. You know, I think reporting, reporting structures, you know, need to be there so that, you know, when you're working with an employer, they can see, you know, what, what are the outcomes, right? You know, versus for what I'm paying for. How many employers, uh, you know, or payers, right, are, are you guys working with today? We uh, have uh, our, either our cost containment, our kidney dialysis avoidance program, or both in uh, over 500 employer plans. And that's really growing every month. And um, there's one other service that uh, we are we are rolling out, which is to just provide our data services. So uh, a large population, we may want to run our risk algorithms on that large population, say maybe a regional health plan. That's something that's coming out in the future and we've got some interest in. So, so on this, 
standalone health plan uh, side of the house, we've got over 500 health plans slash employers that we've contracted with. Yeah, well, I know we have we have a group here at Alliant that focuses on tribal nations and uh, and their respective organizations, and uh, and you guys do do great work for them. So we're we're familiar with the good work that you guys do. Gosh, we've talked about a lot here, Jim. What are you most excited about in the business? Uh, any any sort of improvements or enhancements or things on the horizon that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited about uh, that data service that we're working on. So our, our um, advances in the machine learning and artificial intelligence space have uh, really jumped in the last few months. And, and that's uh, something that we're doing more of and rolling out in other places. And I think what really, if you think in terms of the sales cycle, we're, we're moving into the end of Q3, Q4 here, where people are really thinking about their plan renewal dates because so many of those are one-ones. And just as we've grown our team and we're, we're getting the word out more, every group that we partner with, we get more great stories of cost savings, but even better stories of member support, member members who whose lives have been improved by working with our clinicians. And to me, from a Renologic business point of view, that's, that's great. That's where we want to be. We want to do that. But I also have a personal interest in this. We talked about the you know, our culture of health, et cetera. When we're able to impact the members that we work with, that has a trickle-down effect to the rest of their family. And a, a big personal topic for me is this, the state of health of the younger generation. And you may have seen this, the stat out there that this generation of kids is the first generation that's predicted to have a shorter lifespan than their parents. Yeah. When we're helping the parents and the grandparents understand their health and undo the the mistakes of their lives and their lifestyles that have led them oftentimes to this these types of chronic conditions, that then can trickle down to the next generation. And from what we talked about earlier, having an impact on the culture and the population, that I think is is really meaningful in terms of what we're doing that extends beyond the plans. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's making it, it's making a difference in people's lives. It's, it's more than just cost containment for sure. Exactly. So, um, Jim, gosh, uh, if, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? You know, I, I think you're, you're pretty thorough. I, I don't think we've missed anything. All right. Good. I try to be thorough. Um, so how can people interested in your, in the product and service, um, get in touch with you and learn more about Renalogic? So, uh, best thing to do is go to our website, renalogic.com. And, uh, we've got uh, contact pages, case studies, blogs, and, uh, phone numbers there. Uh, or you could just send an email to info at renalogic.com. And uh, my information is on there too. If you would like to connect with me directly, I was happy to connect there or through LinkedIn with anybody uh, that would like to talk about chronic kidney disease, risk management, or anything to do with uh, helping people live and lead a better life. Well, awesome. So Jim, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. I mean, I think, I think this is a really interesting topic and it's just a niche sort of, you know, segment of healthcare that uh, is probably under the radar for a lot of people, unless you are involved in the financials and, and looking at large claims. So uh, I think it's been great to uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us. I think it's been a great conversation. Well, it's been my pleasure and thank you for the opportunity. And uh, we are a little under the radar, but it's a big part of my job is making sure that we're more on the radar for everyone else. And, uh, and I'm sure being here will help us with that. So thank you. 
Hopefully, hopefully. To our listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Renologic's website and contact information. Lastly, we're always looking for innovative companies to interview on the podcast. And recently, we've had a few subscribers reach out and suggest some guests for the show. So first of all, thank you to those folks who reached out. And second, I would encourage others, please do send us a note if you know someone doing good work in the industry who you think should be highlighted on the show. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.